1: This is the John Fugelsang podcast.
2: Guys, there's a lot to get to today. Announcements, sure. Lots of great guests coming up. Bob Woodward will be joining the show for the very first time. I'm I'm, I'm thrilled about it. Uh, And I'm going to conduct the interview and then I'm not going to release it uh, until it's convenient when I have a book to publish. But that's the plan. Also, uh, the great Jonathan Price, star of everything from Terry Gilliam's Brazil to Glengarry Glen Ross to Best Actor nominee for the Two Popes to, my God, Game of Thrones. Jonathan Price is going to be with us as well. And lots of other great guests we're hoping we can announce very, very soon. As you know, tomorrow is Election Day. We have got a great lineup, a very special guest planned, and I hope you guys can join us. I know, I know there's a temptation to go to cable news on Election Day. But guys, cable news doesn't care what you think. They don't ask for your opinions. No one on cable news is going to have an insane right-winger call up and talk shit and have to handle it. Here, that could happen any time. And we have a great lineup on the show tomorrow night. Journalist Max Burns will be joining us. The great Dahlia Lithwick will be with us. Uh, Reverend Jackie Lewis of the Middle Church in New York City. The wonderful Nayara Hawk, uh, Jessica Mason-Piclo, also known as Hegemami. For you social media stars, Dr. Jason Nichols from the University of Maryland. And one of the funniest people on earth, Judy Gold. That's 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 a pretty eclectic mix of broadcasters, journalists, authors, clergy, academics, and uh, Judy Gold. So it's going to be a party over here tomorrow night, and we hope you'll join the Love Fest and uh, be a part of it. Here's the deal. Despair is privilege. So you can be down about the results, but you don't get to be despondent about the results. We still need you in the fight. We have a wonderful show planned for tonight. Rhonda Hansom. Comedian extraordinaire will be with us in hour number three. One of uh, well, one of the best journalists in the game. Bob Henley will join us on the eve of Election Day to talk all about the challenges that are faced by working people in this country and a very special guest who I've been really looking forward to having on the show. You might have seen the show for life on ABC. It's based on the life of our guest Isaac Wright Jr., who's an attorney, a consultant, an entrepreneur, and a philanthropist. He's best known for being falsely accused and convicted as a drug lord in the late 80s. He was sentenced to life in prison in 1991, facing 10 charges involving the sale of cocaine. He didn't trust his lawyers, so he tried to represent himself. And what could have been a 20-year plea turned into a 70-year sentence. But he kept at it, became a paralegal, kept on studying the law. Eventually, he got multiple other inmates exonerated because of his own legal skills. And it took many, many years for him to finally get his own case. But when it was done, the charges against him were dismissed. The ABC legal drama series for life is a fictionalized legal and family drama inspired by his life. It's co-produced by 50 Cent. And now he's released his memoir, Marked for Life, One Man's Fight for Justice from the Inside. And he ran for mayor last year in New York, so I have a lot I want to talk to him about already. Isaac Wright joins us tonight for a story about justice that'll make you angry and make your heart sore. Let's do a show. I think Elon Musk wakes up and just says things to do today. Uh, Get rid of censorship, bring back comedy, and then censorship of comics. That's pretty much the entire game plan for the richest man in the world and the toy he just bought. But... uh, Let me get to Elon in a second, because the midterms tomorrow are going to be the first major election in our country since conspiracy theories and lies about our elections ate the party that Lincoln used to belong to. Sixty six percent of Republicans still believe that Joe Biden, who was legitimately elected, was not legitimately elected. The absence of evidence, the fact that the people pushing these lies are demonstrably proven liars. The fact that everyone in Trump's circle told him that Joe Biden had legitimately won and the fact that over 60 cases were left out of court, some with extreme prejudice. It doesn't matter to our friends on the right. The right wing media empire has spent months laying the groundwork, preparing the brains to protest the results of any of the midterms they don't like if the votes don't go their way. As of now, 64 jurisdictions across 24 states has the Justice Department receiving, uh, sending federal monitors to oversee polling places during the elections. Two years ago, when it was Trump and Biden for president, they sent monitors to 44 jurisdictions in 18 states. Now, 64 jurisdictions across 24 states. They're, they're going to call fraud no matter what, and you should be ready for that right-wing candidates who lose will declare fraud that's just the way it's going to be much like donald trump when he loses or before he does he tells you and donald trump has already said this election's marked by fraud this election's no good you guys know what's going to happen they're going to continue doing it the question's going to be how much will we the people allow them to get away with that's always the question isn't it allow me to quote a former democratic president Today, the forces of liberalism face a crisis. The people of the United States must make a choice between two ways of living, a decision which will affect us, the rest of our lives, and our children and our grandchildren after us. On the other side, there's the Wall Street way of life and politics. Trust the leader. Let big business take care of the prices and profits. Measure all things by money. That is the philosophy of the masters of the Republican Party. Well, I've been studying the Republican Party for over 12 years at close hand in the capital of the U.S. I've discovered where the Republicans stand on most of the major issues. Since they won't tell you themselves, I am going to tell you. They approve of the American farmer, but they're willing to let him go broke. They stand four square for the American home, but not for housing. They are strong for labor, but they are stronger for restricting labor's rights. They favor a minimum wage. The smaller the minimum, the better." They endorse educational opportunity for all, but they won't spend money for teachers or for schools. They think modern medical care and hospitals are fine for the people who can afford them. They approve of Social Security benefits so much so that they took them away from a million people. They favor admission of displaced persons, but only within shameful racial and religious limitations. They think the American standard of living is a fine thing, so long as it doesn't spread to all. And they admire the government of the U.S. so much that they would like to buy it. Now, my friends, that is the Wall Street Republican way of life. But there is another way. There is another way, the Democratic way, the way of the Democratic Party. Of course, the Democratic Party is not perfect. Nobody ever said it was. But the Democratic Party believes in the people. It believes in freedom and progress. And it is fighting for its beliefs right now. In the Democratic Party, you won't find the kind of unity where everyone thinks what the boss tells him to think and nothing else. That was Harry Truman in an address in St. Paul, Minnesota, October 13th, 1948. Yeah, 74 years ago, Harry Truman completely defined what the GOP looks for right now. And it looks like uh, they got Elon Musk endorsing them. He did it today. Well, in April, he tweeted for Twitter to deserve public trust. It must be politically neutral. Today, Elon said, I recommend voting for a Republican Congress one day until the midterms. The new owner of Twitter has called on his 100 million plus followers to vote for the party that wants to cut his taxes. He said, shared power curbs the worst excesses of both parties. Therefore, I recommend voting for a Republican Congress, given that the presidency is Democratic. OK, right wing media would be insane in fury if any social media heads openly endorsed the Democrat on the eve of the election. And they loved it. Barry Diller just said Twitter's a toy for Musk. He said he bought a toy and how long he will use it like toys. We don't really know. They're already reaching out to some of the laid off staffers from last week. You know that the company found out they need some of the former employees to maintain service and launch new features. Twitter is going to delay the launch of the new blue check marks for new blue subscribers until after the election. According to the New York Times, Uh, researchers and activists are warning the change could fuel fraud and misinformation. And that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Remember, a, a blue check mark on Twitter used to mean uh, the website had investigated and declared, yes, we can confirm this person is who they claim to be. A blue check mark on Twitter now will mean some guy had eight bucks. Yeah. And he has a, he has a site, Michelle Obama with a blue check mark. That's this guy. This was the man who said he was going to make Twitter a bastion of free speech. You know what he's doing now? He's banning comedians, he's banning Kathy Griffin. And Kathy's a friend of the show. Kathy's a friend of mine. She did this thing called parody where she made her username Elon Musk. It still said Kathy Griffin on her handle. But today, Elon tweeted going forward, any Twitter handles engaging in impersonation without clearly specifying parody will be permanently suspended. This was the guy who said he was bringing comedy back to Twitter. Sarah Silverman got banned. Rich Summer from Mad Men got banned. It's just insane. He said if she wants her account back, she can have it for $8. Elon Musk is a billionaire, the richest man in the world, and he's walking around asking for $8 like an irritating liberal with a clipboard outside of Whole Foods. This is a billionaire who's against unions. It's a billionaire who's against fair taxes for the wealthy. It's the last person any of us should be listening to. And it's distracting us from Donald Trump. Did you happen here this weekend? Donald Trump has had it with Ron DeSantis. It has begun. I've told you guys for months, just hang tight, hang tight. The Trump DeSantis civil war is coming. There is a God. He loves you. He wants you to laugh. You will see. He said in Florida, in Miami, yesterday afternoon, he said, the people of Florida are going to reelect the wonderful, great friend of mine, Marco Rubio, to the U.S. Senate, and you're going to reelect Ron DeSantis as your governor. <laughs> I know, right? Lukewarm is the new black. But the night before... Were you watching over the weekend or did you have a life? Trump was in Pennsylvania and he was mocking all the other Republicans that might run against him for their low poll numbers. And he called Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSanctimonious. And I got to say, it's not a popular opinion. I thought it was funny. I give Trump points. This is right after DeSantis releases an ad where he pretty much approves a message saying that God chose him to run because God needed a fighter. God's kind of a beta male, can't fight for himself, needed this pudgy mediocrity from Florida to do so. Rhonda Sanctimonious, I thought was really funny. Uh, People hated it. Republicans and Democrats alike. I don't know. I thought it was pretty smart for Donald Trump or Stephen Miller. I don't think Trump knows that word. But look, guys, what I'm trying to say is the fuckery is going to be turned to 11. Okay, this election is going to be a train wreck tomorrow, not just tomorrow night with our fine coverage, but be ready for the weeks to come, maybe even months to come. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be the kind of mess Donald Trump is counting on. We might not know who controls the House for days. okay? and in the case of the Senate, we might not know for weeks. They might have to have another runoff in Georgia like we had two years ago. And then you've got hundreds of Republican candidates up and down the ballot who are on the record uh, of lying about the 2020 election results. Some of them were there January 6th at the riot. So they're going to lie. They're going to make a mess. They're going to claim it was stolen before the votes are all counted. At least a dozen candidates running in competitive state and governor and secretary of state races refuse to commit or decline to respond when asked whether they'll accept the results of their races. So if these election denying candidates, I hate saying election deny, if these liars lose, they're not going to go graciously into that good night. These are candidates whose brands are founded In their denial of the uncontroversial 2020 election results where Donald Trump's secretary of state, his homeland security chief, his attorney general and his own daughter wife all said the election was legit. So Trump, Lord of lies, he's already laying the the groundwork. Last week, he said the 2022 results in Pennsylvania are already rigged. In the midst of all this, in the midst of all this. I'm just glad that we have Dinesh D'Souza to keep lies about vaccines going because I I don't know what I would do without that. We're dealing with Elon. We're dealing with Dr. Oz. We're dealing with Herschel Walker. We're dealing with, oh my God, J.D. Vance, Donald Trump's all over the place. It just seems like we need to have a little bit of COVID crazy. And I got to tell you, not to brag, I got lucky over the weekend. I was trolled on Twitter because I'm still on Twitter by, uh, by distort the Nuza or just Dinesh D'Souza. I, I get his name wrong all the time. Sorry, I should be better at that. Um, Dinesh came after me, because I had said in a tweet, you know, all those ghouls on Twitter layoffs celebrating Americans losing their jobs right before the holidays. Well, they're all going to vote. And they hope you're not. So Dinesh came to me, the felon, uh, wife beater, alleged his wife said he beat her pardoned by Trump. He made illegal campaign contributions and admitted his guilt in court. He said to me, can you share your tweets expressing sympathy for all those who lost their livelihoods, but because they would not submit to vaccine mandates? Ooh, yeah, not a problem. Uh, Ready, Dinesh? The vaccines worked, you liars. The vaccines worked, not perfectly, but they're sort of like Democrats. They got the job done, even if they weren't perfect and didn't have a perfect track record doing it. The vaccines worked. We are no longer losing 3000 Americans a day. We no longer have refrigerated morgue trucks piled up outside our hospitals that are overflowing. Also, the people he speaks of who lost their livelihoods because they would not submit to vaccine mandates. Yeah. Unlike Twitter employees, those people had a choice. They had a choice. They chose to lose their jobs because they didn't give a damn about public health. They didn't give a rat's ass about the lives of other Americans. And finally, nobody. Nobody callously celebrated the firings of people who lost their jobs over the vaccines. You amoral fake Christian scam peddling admitted felon, Dinesh you. So look, we know what's going to happen if there's a Republican Congress. We know how they're going to vote. We know what it's going to look like just this year. They wouldn't lower insulin costs. They wouldn't expand health benefits to veterans. They would do nothing to curb gun violence. They would do nothing to fight the baby formula shortage, they would do nothing to stop the oil company price gouging. $28 million for baby formula, nothing. Ban untraceable ghost guns, no. The gun violence bill, no. Vets benefits in the PACT Act, no. Lowering the cost of insulin for sick Americans, ho ho ho, 193 in the House voted against that. The oil and gas price gouging bill, 203 Republicans voted against that. We know how they're going to vote. We know what they're going to do. They're going to do Nothing. They're going to watch it get worse, and they're going to use their media to tell your uncle racist and your aunt dead inside who they should blame. And guess who that's going to be?
0: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes.
2: Isaac Wright Jr. is an American attorney. Uh, He's best known for being falsely accused and convicted as a drug lord and sentenced to life in prison back in 1991, facing 10 charges involving the sale of cocaine. He was an enterprising artist and manager and accused of being a drug kingpin, incarcerated in Somerset County, while a prosecutor and cops built up a case against him based mostly on lies. He would see people get up on the witness stand and testify that he was a drug kingpin that he had never met before. He was pressured to take a plea deal offer of 20 years. He chose to take the law into his own hands. He wound up being sentenced for life, but once he was behind bars, he studied the statues, he studied the cases in the jail's law library, and became an incredible legal mind. He used his knowledge to help defend his fellow inmates, and eventually, after being sentenced to 70 years in Trenton State Prison kept on learning kept on learning and despite threats to his sanity threats to his family he fought for his life and he fought for the lives of men around him and ultimately won his freedom the abc legal series for life is a fictionalized legal and family drama inspired by his life it's co-produced by 50 cent he ran for mayor of new york city last year and now has released an astonishing memoir marked for life one man's fight For justice from the inside. It's not just one man's life, though. It is a story of how he found his true calling as someone who would fight for others at the lowest point of his life and devoted himself to oppressed and marginalized communities and anyone victimized by an unjust system of law. It is a great pleasure to welcome Isaac Wright Jr. Hello, sir.
3: Hi, how are you? Thank you. Thank you,
2: very uh, much. thank you. I thank you. I know it's quite an introduction to build you up for any <laughs> interviews and I've I've seen you give interviews before and You know, you've told your story so many times in looking at your book It must have been very moving for you to actually be able to tell the story in your own words at your own pace Not just filling TV segments with quick interview bites, right?
3: Yeah, it was it was uh, it was a very refreshing experience because you know the, the TV show it missed a lot of significant details and and it it also took its liberties uh with other details and and so there was a skewed uh reality uh that the public had and and I, it was very very fresh refreshing you know to to give them uh this information the reality of of the, the of what the real tragedy of being incarcerated is and i mean you know that some of it was touched on with for life but you know this book uh, gives you a, an unadulterated reality of life behind bars and especially life behind bars for those who are innocent yeah um, so it was a refreshing experience
2: i've done a lot of work with death penalty focus of southern california and i've had the distinct pleasure of spending a lot of time with exonerees who spent decades on on death row for crimes they never committed And it's astonishing, more and more of these stories coming to light all the time. Yours is not one that used DNA evidence either. But it just seems like, even in running for mayor, you've told your narrative so often, but this is the problem. When you convert a story to a TV show or a movie, the truth is there, but the facts might be different. And I'm curious, what what were some of the facts of your case that you were most eager to get out to the public, in your own words?
3: Well, the... Law enforcement officer that that killed himself uh, was a CEO in the in the uh, in the TV show. But it was it was actually the prosecutor, the head prosecutor who killed himself. In my case, Um, that was significant for a couple of reasons. One, uh, obviously, he was a law enforcement officer, but he was the chief law enforcement officer because he was not an assistant. He was the head prosecutor. Uh, Head prosecutors are basically administrators. They don't try cases, but he took my case personally he tried it himself that wasn't a part of, of the, the TV show um, one of the other significant things that was left out was that you know it, it, in the in the TV show it has it has uh, the character's wife uh, raising the daughter um, mm-hmm. but in reality they sent my wife to prison as a means to to punish me for something that's right. obviously also that she didn't do that wasn't told obviously in the, in the, in the show, but it's, you know, it's in the book and it explains uh, how those things unwound, how they unraveled and, and how, you know, the the prosecutor was able to do it and get away with it. It's very detailed.
2: You know, for people who weren't around in the late eighties, it's hard to explain how terrified certain conservative white people were of hip hop, and what hip hop represented. I mean, if people could see go back in time and see the 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 protests against public enemy shows and and you were someone who'd been on Star Search, you were a producer, you toured with Run-DMC, and it in the book it really lays out how they went after you because of who you were. You write, "I was at a nexus of all these people, the nucleus of the well-off, the famous and the local hustlers. It put me on the radar of a joint drug unit that Middlesex County formed." with neighboring Somerset County. It's astonishing how low the burden of proof was for this conspiracy. They aligned against you. Do you have any sense, sir, of when you first got on this prosecutor's radar, how they first became aware of who you were or thought that you were someone that they could interfere with?
3: Well, you know, one of the best ways to answer that question is is to provide a certain backdrop uh, on Please. what the reality was at that time. I mean, you you mentioning the fact that it was in the 80s, is extremely significant because the war on drugs was, was in its infancy and law enforcement was just running wild. Right. Um, this was a situation where it was a hunt. You can back it to a person, uh, a hunter going out and, and utilizing everything at his, at his disposal to get its prey. And one of the things that they did when it came down to the 80s is they made forfeitures uh, the forefront of the drug war. And what that allowed prosecutors to do was to enrich the state and enrich themselves uh, off the blood, sweat, and tears of other people. And so greed was an incredible factor, uh, in motivating law enforcement to take people down, to set them up, to do whatever it was necessary, not only to put people in prison, but to also snatch that wealth away from them. And the issue of guilt or innocence, You know, it took a back seat. And so this this in in the in the 80s, the other thing that was significant is that obviously, you know, there was no social media. There was no crying towel. You know, people were annihilated and entire families were annihilated with impunity and no one questioned it. And so this happened at a time where the general public was cheerleading the conduct of law enforcement. Correct. uh, And protecting it. Uh, And so, you know, it, it, it spawned out of hand and it bred people like prosecutor Bissell at the time who actually turned his office into a criminal organization.
2: He sure did. Uh, I mean, he planted cocaine. He, he tried to frame a judge who angered him with a charge for drunk driving. He skimmed thousands of dollars from the businesses he invested. I mean, he was a completely crooked cop. But this was the same era when cops was premiering on TV and this stormtrooper mentality was romanticized in the media. And one of the things that's so heartbreaking in your book is how during the trial, you just you knew that you were innocent and you knew that you were going to jail and you knew that your attorneys were absolutely useless to you. That's right.
3: You know, but one of the things about facing reality, and I I use that term a lot because, you know, when a a person is in trouble, one of the things that they want to face the least is the reality of their situation. You know, they, they they do not want to come to terms with what's really happening to them and the magnitude of what's happening to them. And what that does is it allows the hole that's being dug for their burial to get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And by the time the reality sits in and hits them, they're so deep. They're so so buried, so deep that it takes, like you said, decades yeah. for them to to unbury themselves. And for me, I embraced my reality early on. I saw uh, the reality of my situation. I saw what was happening around me. I saw the corruption. It, it was a, it was a shock. I mean, it was a very, very tragic for me in the sense that I had no idea uh, that, that the system was like that. Um, but once I faced that reality, I began to slow that process down of digging that hole. And so the more I fought, the less deep that hole got. So when I was buried, I was eventually buried, you know, yeah. It, it was, it was 20 feet instead of a hundred feet. Uh, so my climb over the next seven and a half years, you know, my, my struggle and my climb to get out of that hole that I was buried in was not as deep and onerous as some of these guys that are sitting on death row for 20, you know, 40 years or some of these guys that are not sitting on death row, but was in prison for 20, 26 years, 25 years. And eventually, um, with the help of some great legal minds, You know was 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 dug out of that hole that they were buried in
2: but that's what astonishes me about your story sir because you you could have just gone straight to despair you could have gone to negativity you could have gone hardcore to self-destructive behavior and just ran to meet your fate in the darkest way possible but as soon as you got to jail, you were going straight to the prison legal library. And yes. I'm curious, was that something that was always inside of you or were you surprised yourself at the focus you had and, and the commitment was, you had when was everyone surprised. else broke you off?
3: I was surprised. I mean, you know, I was a young man, so so I was more focused before I went to prison. I was more focused on the excitement of living. I was more focused on the success that I was gaining in entertainment and the jet setting that I was doing I was there was right. a, an incredible distraction from being able to find yourself to being from being able to find out who you really are That's you right. know and so when I went to prison and I saw that I was alone I didn't understand you know when I first went to the law library I went to the law library to kind of deal with the shock of what was happening to me because I didn't understand how they were able to do what they did, how easy it was, and and, and the way in which the system protected their conduct. So I, I went there to, to find out initially, you know, whether this thing that I was caught into was caught up into, whether it was not only was it real in a sense, uh, uh, can they really do what they're doing, but was there a way that I could find out how they were able to do it? And what, I, and what happened is when I picked up the first law book and I started reading, it was like, I've been doing it all my life. I mean, it was it was a closeness. There was an affinity there uh, that really shocked me. And the more I got into it, the more I read, the more I studied, the more um, my focus evolved in and evolved from not seeking help that was not there, but helping myself in light of the fact that, you know, I was alone. Um, it, It just so happens that I had a gift that I didn't know anything about That's until amazing. it surfaced in prison.
2: And, and it even gets better than that. I mean, let me quote you from the book, and this is the kind of quote that shows why this book is a great gift as well. If I waited around for someone to save me, I'd be waiting my whole life. Unless I took the reins of this thing myself, I was going to die in prison. If that was my destiny, then I was going to die fighting. The desperation of that equation kept me up most nights. I would never find a gladiator so I had to become him. How unheard of was it for a man in your position at this time to represent himself?
3: It was, it was completely unheard of. And, and, and you know, I don't say that lightly because I have to go back to the statement and in the, in the, in the point that you made early on. This was the eighties. I was a young black man in the eighties with the audacity to represent myself um, against a superior enemy for lack of a better word. And what was happening is that that audacity was actually being used against me. The more I fought, the more I was hated for it, the more that there was a need by the system to make me an an example. And so my fight became a double-edged sword. But at some point I became so experienced and so engulfed in the knowledge of the law and the way in which to use it against their policies and against their procedures and and against their injustices that I became better than the people who who actually buried me. Oh, yeah. And it's and and the thing is, it was a and this is very important, too, because it wasn't something that they saw coming. This is extremely important. You know, this you always have to remember that when you're up against when you're outgunned you're outmanned you're up, you're up against a superior enemy all they got to do is see you coming and they wipe you off the map that's it so one of the one of the gifts is my intuition and judgment was understanding that my plans had to evolve in such a way where they could not see me coming until it was too late and i was able to successfully do that obviously it was over the course of seven and a half years you know, that's not a short period of time to be serving life in a maximum security prison. No, you sir. know, but 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 I prevailed and I had the rest of my life, you know, to to kind of build back some of the things that I lost and replace some of the things that I could never, you know, or at least try to replace some of the things that I could never get back.
2: And that alone is a great story for a movie or a TV series. But, sir, how many how many prisoners did you help get released or help get new trials?
3: Um, You know, it's it's hard to count all of them. The the ones that I can count are the ones that I know that directly uh, was affected by the legal work that I did. I know of at least twenty to thirty inmates that got either their either went home or got their time cut. But here's what happens in the law. Um, just to give you an example of why I'm saying Please. it's it's hard for me to say specifically how many t- how many uh, got released or how many got sure. released. When you make new law, that law is being used by attorneys. For clients you don't even know exists. The only way that you can really truly understand how many people you've helped is they have to be directly related to you, your client, yes. someone that you actually helped personally, or you're reading the results of them using that new law in other cases. And so you know, you know what? Okay, it helped this guy also. But there's there's thousands that of cases that are not published. Yes that people are using your law to get relief on. And so I know between 20 and 30, um, but you know, for me to say specifically, I, I could never do it because I'm sure that it was hundreds and probably possibly thousands that were able to use that law that I made for their benefit and to help them.
2: Well, and I, I'd I love to tell everybody about the loophole you found and your legal theory you did that actually resulted in your conviction being thrown out, but people have to buy the book. It's thrilling, and I want to say, sir, I wish that uh, that you were our mayor right now in New York. The book, once again, is Marked for Life, One Man's Fight for Justice from the Inside. Isaac Wright Jr., congratulations on the success of the TV series, and I can't wait to see what you do next. This book is wonderful and deeply inspiring for everyone, regardless regardless of their background.
3: Thank you so very much. I appreciate you.
2: Thank you. We have a platform open to you anytime. What a pleasure and an honor. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We have to take a very quick break. When we get back, it's back to the midterms and your calls at 866-997-4748. This is Progress. We'll be right back.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you.
2: Bob Henley. During his 40-year career, he's covered everything in public policy from corruption and economy to homeland security and immigration, environmental policy, COVID-19. He was a senior reporter at WNYC for 12 years. You've read his stuff in The Chief Leader, The New York Times, The Christian Science Monitor, Detroit Free Press and uh, PBS NewsHour and Salon. Bob Henley, what a pleasure to welcome you back. Hello.
1: Thanks for having me and what an auspicious occasion.
2: Yeah. Happy Election Eve, Bob. I have a lot I want to talk to you about, but I I would really love to begin by talking about how you feel about the midterms and more specifically, how you feel about uh, the midterm coverage and how the corporate media has been selling our national dramas back to us.
1: So I I think only in a media that had been totally subsumed by the corporate news could you have people stuck in a mass death event where a lack and scarcity of health care contributed to us being, you know, we're 4% of the world's population, 14% of the body count from COVID. Yeah. And we're talking about purse snatchings. Yeah. That's I mean, really well done. That is a kind of three-card mounting. And I think it has to do with the fact that the advertising is about Medicare Advantage, about pharmaceuticals, but the circumstance of the American people has been wholly absent from the discussion of the economy and of the campaign. Case in point would be the way we talk about inflation. And so forever in a day, we've always spoken about inflation being a matter of controlling the value of money. Why, we arrange things based on the value of our currency. We sacrifice the population. We sacrifice new housing starts. We sacrifice people's futures to keep the value of money. But then something funny happened, which was not so funny, a mass death event. It hadn't happened in 100 years. And all of a sudden, labor was the problem. And the impediment to growth and prosperity are millions of Americans who can't afford to go back to work.
2: Yeah, yeah. And to say nothing of the fact that the labor force that we exploit, that we use to prop up our economy, was suddenly called what? Essential workers like it was a consolation prize. And of course, as soon as the White House found out in April of 2020, the the Trump administration, as soon as they found out COVID was disproportionately affecting black and brown Americans, that's when they changed their tune and it became Reopen America. And and again, we saw a president lie to people during a plague. Are we shocked that we're the first developed nation to have one million confirmed deaths?
1: Well, and I know that you're going to have Mr. Woodward on and that question comes up, his decision to have had that information early in the pandemic and then his decision not to disclose it. And I would tell you that's one of the problems also is that the loss of local reporting, local authentic reporting, reported. reported, This is what's been going on. I've written a lot about the news guild CWA. They have 50 newsrooms of the Gannett chain organized. The Gannett chain has been gobbling up with borrowed money from Wall Street, America's newspapers, and then gutting them, selling off the printing presses and the offices and laying people off and then taking the proceeds and paying their CEO $7 million and then paying back the debt. Now they've driven it into the ground. I I think what's happened is we've lost the situational awareness that comes from a well-informed public that is getting their news and information from thousands and thousands of local reporters. Well, i got to tell you something. There isn't a local reporter that I know, and I know many of them, that would have sat on that story like Woodward did.
2: Yeah, I know. I know. it's Shocking. No, I mean, believe me, I think I and I assume, Bob, that Bob Woodward has his standard answer for this question all over the place. But I'm glad we're bringing it up. And I I assign it to Maggie Haberman as well. I assign it to everybody who had John Bolton, anyone in this administration or who had an inside angle on this administration who had information about this president's cruelty, dishonesty, venality and sat on it to sell a book. It's something they all have to answer for. No matter how good the book is.
1: Well, and I think also the thing is that our understanding of history, they keep rolling out the same old, same old way of covering elections. And I I think that this is something that is uh, we have to see history anew when it changes in front of our very eyes. And it changed on January 6th, where there was a violent insurrection that almost overthrew the peaceful transition of power and not to see that. And to have this what about us in journalism. I mean, the stunning example for me was the New York Times on Friday with the headline on A1 Fears over Crime Way on Voters Benefiting GOP. Yep. And they spent 40 paragraphs with anecdotal right wing cotton candy about somebody knew somebody who had been hit with a mallet. And then the news, and this, they took a half dozen reporters to do this, the news that they found was buried on the jump, way in the story. Where it turns out, don't you know, that the FBI changed the way that they compiled uniform crime statistics, and last year, a third of the cities, including large ones, didn't report data at all. That's, That's all right. burying the lead.
2: That's right. Well, I'll, I mean, look. I I find the media's fascination with crime fascinating, and and again yes crime got worse during the pandemic and that's not to say that the suffering of people who've been assaulted or robbed isn't real but what i see is the media feeding the republican narrative about crime 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 but never asking the republicans why do you not want to do anything to prevent poverty why do you not want to do anything to prevent crime why are you complaining about crime while trying to make it so much easier for anyone to get their hands on any kind of gun they want, whether it's legal or not. I mean, no one's talking about the fact that the GOP wants to do nothing to stop the proliferation of illegal guns. And it just, it's hard not to believe that this media culture, which, yeah, they depend on their big pharma commercials, they depend on their Medicare Plus ads because you know the tv news audience is older and joe biden just finally passed the law that we're going to be able to start negotiating with medicare for lower drug prices so pharma is going to take a hit it's hard not to think there's a vast big greedy corporate collusion going on that's getting us scared because they're scared of losing their profits
1: well and i think that also the misdirection so the focus is on the idea that we don't want um wages to get out of control, when we have record profits, when we have a level of wealth inequality the nation's never experienced, when, as a practical matter, and this comes from actually having to get into the world and report and knock on doors and, and engage with people, we have 2 million women in this country, John, who would love to go back to the workforce, but because of the collapse of public education, which, by the way, was unprecedented, we managed to send people to school during the Second World War and the Depression. So, yeah. what we've experienced was more traumatic than the Great Depression in terms of the velocity of job loss and the psychosocial implications for our communities. And yeah. we don't want to own that. We don't want, we, as we speak right now, we have no idea how many essential workers died from COVID. We have no idea how many of those heroes we were banging pots for. Uh, pots for are permanently disabled. And here's the other thing. This is the other thing no one's talking about. What are these public servants hearing? I was just at a rally in Trenton. Those first responders and nurses, they're looking at a 20 to 24% increase in health care premiums.
2: Unreal.
1: Sweeping the country.
2: Unreal. And so,
1: exactly. And so did we have any kind of 9-11 commission uh, hearing looking at, hmm, what connection is there between our scarcity profit-driven health care and blocking access to health care and the high body count. Hmm, could there be a connection? No, let's talk about Mrs. McGillicuddy, who had her purse stolen on the number one local. That's what we want to focus on.
2: Exactly. I mean, my God, true crime and local news always hand in hand. But you you nail this in a piece for Insider NJ. Um, Mr. Henley, COVID aftershocks roiling public workforce health insurance rates. I got to tell you, I didn't know about this, but the potential impact of double digit rate hikes. For our nation's largest union for federal workers, you write um, the average federal employee can expect a remarkably high increase in their health insurance premiums with members enrolled in benefits from Blue Cross Blue Shield, expecting to see an increase between 10.7 and 11.7 percent in premiums. This comes from the American Federation of Government Employees. This is the sort of news that I guess the Democrats don't have to worry about, Bob, because while it might make the White House have to defend themselves. Mainstream media doesn't care about labor stories. They're not going to cover this.
1: Well, well, also, the thing is that what we've come to, and it's blowing up in New York City, all across the country, this is the issue. Because as long as this country insists on marrying health care to employment, thank you, Americans will never see a raise again. This is the new slavery. Just ca- I know people get all upset about critical race theory. This is the new bondage. The business right. that you have to work for healthcare means that you will never get ahead because we have a situation where they are driving the narrative in terms of, I mean, like Medicare Advantage. We have heard wall to wall advertising, but I'll give credit to the New York Times. We've had series one investigation after another that shows that Medicare Advantage and at least several instances involving major insurance companies is turning out to be a fraudulent exercise where they actually give bonuses to doctors to go look at people's charts and make them up to be sicker than they are for the purpose of extracting billions more than they're entitled to out of Medicare. That is what's going on here.
2: I, I agree. But, you know, I mean, where are the Democrats screaming about this? Like, why aren't we? I'm fond of saying why. Why do we have this anti-capitalist system where employers are expected to include a health care package as part of your compensation? What kind of World War Two relic is this? I mean, Democrats can use language like that and wake people up to how rigged the system is and how much they're getting screwed as opposed to our capitalist allies. Who pay all their medical bills the day they pay their taxes?
1: Well, what's fascinating to me, I like the way you turned that in something about being anti capitalist because mm-hmm. it does make the United States singularly uncompetitive. When yeah. you look at the fact that we're behind an in infrastructure, everything comes back to this. When you look at the cost of American public works projects, and they always say, it's the unions, it's the unions. Uh, They have even stronger unions in Europe. What they don't have is requiring the construction company pay for the health insurance of all the workers. And so I don't know we at this point point in all the nations of the world, the OECD countries, the ones that are equivalent to us in terms of economy and 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 the level of development. Mm -hmm. We rank highest in expense and lowest in outcome, folks, and. We have a declining, we've talked about this before, we've had a declining American life expectancy for three years in a row. Now, with the pandemic, it's even more of a catastrophic drop. If we were a developing nation, the World Bank would require an improvement plan.
2: That's right. You quote AFGE President Everett Kelly in your piece insurance companies brought in 150 billion in profits from 2012 to 21 including 19 billion with a b just last year instead of coming up with creative solutions to tackle this waste in the healthcare system and taking proactive steps to bend the cost curve the government's relying on the private sector's tired broken strategy of continuous cost shifting on to employees. I, I read this Bob in your piece and I'm like, I can't believe the Democrats are still losing on this issue. I just can't believe
1: well, and, it. Well, and part of it is that the medical industrial complex uh, has gotten a hold of both parties and but sure. they have a little bit more a little less of a hold on the Democrats, and that's because the Progressive Caucus were finally in significant enough numbers that that Bernie um had some you know some A little bit of power to negotiate but still the bottom line here is that we're we're staring at a system that is actually going to keep stunting growth in the united states and also has poor health outcomes there is a linkage between the high body count and the impediments to care that we have in the united states that don't exist anywhere else and so we have to take a look at that we have to be honest and look at the relationship between The rationing of care based on a for-profit system and what that does to the life expectancy of the population. And if we permit huge swaths of the population to be underinsured and undercovered, that means in the age of pandemics, we're setting up ourselves for another mass death event. It's that simple. Our biology is linked. We may not like it. It may not be cool. No, you're right. But the fate of your neighbor is linked directly to your own long-term prognosis. (laughs)
2: Well, I don't want to make it more depressing, Bob, but can I can I shift and talk a little bit about local news? Because you have a terrific piece um, in Insider NJ, shredding local news, our essential safety net. And once again, I I got to say, I'm kind of embarrassed. I didn't know that over 200 journalists with News Guild CWA just walked off their jobs uh, as, as local reporters at uh, the Asbury Park Press and The Record and a dozen other newsrooms. Last week, I mean, obviously, I think the one thing that the media hates to report on less than labor is uh, labor that deals with media. <laughs>
1: right. I, I would say that, um, and we saw this with the loss of uh, CNN coverage related to this, we saw what we have seen, you know, Malone has bought into um, CNN, and there's been a directive on high, and there's been some writing about this, to move them towards the the right, and so We have basically this performative politics now where it's uh, equal time, where, like, for instance, this whole story the Times had about fears over crime weigh on voters benefiting GOP. There was nothing in there referring to this event that included thousands of people beating up Capitol police officers. Now, that would be a bad sign. That would make me queasy. But that's part of the zeitgeist that has been censored out of this is a desire to make it like any other election. And that's why when I hear polls like the Gallup one, which is the right way, wrong way survey, they've been doing that forever. It's like tired Christmas ornaments that have passed their time. But we bring them out because we've always put that star on top of the tree. The reality is, like, we've had a mass death event and... Of violent insurrection. So, can we retire the poll questions from before that?
2: Mm hmm. Exactly. Well, I mean, you put it in your piece. You say, as the national horse race coverage of the midterms is being used to shape a right wing ascension narrative, it's more important than ever to critically ask how do we know what we know as voters and as a nation? And one of the big themes we've had, Mr. Henley, in recent weeks with our listeners is, you know, everyone getting together and realizing. Pollsters know nothing and they all know they know nothing and they know we know they know nothing. They're polls of landline phones and people who pick up their cell phones when they don't know who's calling.
1: Well, and it's funny because I have to say, I associate myself with the comments of uh, Michael Moore, who was on MSNBC, and he was being offered up to counter this entire right wing drift. And a lot of it has to do with. Yes. Because uh, where you want to have access, and so what's happening is they're in their echo chamber, and they say, oh, gosh, McCarthy could get the gavel. Hmm, what am I going to do? He doesn't return my calls now. Well, if I start talking about it in a way that he'll – where it feels that I'm contemplating his uh, his victory, then he'll return my calls. There's some of that. It's transactional. Then there's also the sense of the whataboutism, and there's also the sense – the forces behind this, they want tax cuts. They want tax cuts. And the way to get that – is to make sure that the people that have been giving them tax cuts all along are restored to office. And so that lack of, I have to say, if you want to look at the difference between, go back to the 1950s and see the national response to polio and look at the dysfunctional response of COVID today. And what was the essential difference? A robust local news ecology in the 50s Mm -hmm. where... Every local newspaper, if there was a a young Eagle Scout that was stricken by polio, there was a local story about that tragedy, and it was validated and authenticated by individuals who were committed to the communities that they serve. Now, what we have instead is kind of an eclectic gathering of social media, atmospherics from nowhere in particular, and then social media companies and corporate media companies that create analytics that generate traffic based on getting people to be angry and we're that's surprised it. we can't have a comprehensive response to a public health emergency
2: that's it you nailed it so you don't sound terribly optimistic about tomorrow but do you have any thoughts or predictions or hopes I am optimistic. for the midterms I am optimistic. tell me I
1: tell am me. optimistic I, I yes because I Um, has the fortune of um, uh, hosting a a drive time show in New York City every Monday from Mm -hmm. 7 a.m. on where I get to talk to my labor brothers and sisters and we have our own counter narrative and we get out of that a sense of empowerment. And I have been out in the field and seen the SCIU CWA in the community knocking on doors. And I think we're in for a dramatic surprise. I think that we're going to be shaping our own history here, and I, I that's narrative that I'm following, but then I'm actually going physically out into the community to look for that. I'm not watching other stations to watch for what their talking heads are saying. I'm trying exactly. to go and actually observe what's happening out in the streets.
2: Mr. Henley, I'd be most remiss if I didn't take a moment and uh, extend my deepest regrets and condolences and sorrow for the loss of your sister Rachel Patricia Henley, who you wrote a beautiful column about in Salon. And she is um, one of the latest victims of COVID-19.
1: Uh, yeah. 62, my baby sister. Six kids is five. It's, it's been really difficult. She was a trained classical dancer, went on to work for the circus, was a juggler, then refashioned herself into being a folk artist and the maker and carver of marionettes and performed with marionettes that she made in the subways and on the streets of New York City. That is a very unique kind of character yeah. that can do the dying swan with the marionette down on, on the in the subway. That's a special she, kind of character.
2: She hand carved and hand painted her marionettes as well, didn't she?
1: She left us a small army. And so she, before just, and she had had a. A heroic uh, battle with cancer. She had lived beyond the prognosis by two years. And it was, she was hospitalized for some treatments for cancer and then was transferred to a rehab facility close to the hospital. And that's where she contracted COVID because we are still having a problem with infection control. You ha- have to be aware that congregate facilities are still uh, tragically understaffed, even the goods this, good, good ones in this country because they're going to pay people $50 an hour to move dirt at a construction site, but $14 an hour to take care of our loved ones. And it is um, one of the, the positive things she was doing. I mean, she had enough time left and was so mindful and such an inspiration that she had scheduled these events where she has these displays of her marionettes in various public libraries. And so before she passed, we were able to show her the installation and so oh, how nice! Uh, she's been held over at the Ridgewood library so wherever she is i'm sure she's heightened by that but thanks so much for your condolences and she's an inspiration to me every day and uh, it just thanks so much
2: oh no thank you and it's a beautiful tribute you wrote to her in salon i'm going to share it it also includes a link to her pinterest page so people can actually see her work and uh and See all the great work she had done and think about all the great work. She didn't get to do it. Just it's it's so infuriating that she was someone Bob With a pre-existing condition who'd been struggling and and, and fighting cancer so bravely for two years and then and then got COVID at a re- Rehab facility after being well, transferred there feel from the so,
1: hospital I feel, so, I feel so bad for the doctors too because they were really her partners. I mean the millions of dollars, I mean, the, the hospital was very generous. We could, in a million lifetimes, couldn't have paid for the care that she got that was compassionate and extended her life. And because of the lack of attention to detail, all of that work, she made science every day, John, that she yeah. got up and was productive. And that was all squandered because we're trying to do it all.
2: Yeah, of course. Bob, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I'm glad I talked to you before Election Day. And uh, I'm really, really just, it's good to have a chance to honor your sister and her creative work. And her work inspires me. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you, Mr. Henley, and your so, true journalism? Because we're going to need your work more than ever, no matter who wins tomorrow. <laughs>
1: right. Um, at Stuck Nation, because we surely are. And then also, I, my radical labor journalist friends and I have started something called The Work Bites com, which um, is where I put my New York City where is in. I still maintain my office at City Hall, so come see me. And then also Salon, Insider NJ, and 7 a.m. in the morning, it's what's going on on WBAI. Yeah, I got in a little plug. Not so much, man. <laughs>
2: Right on. It's a pleasure. Uh, And I can't wait to hear you on BAI. Bob Henley, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone follow Stuck Nation. We have to take a very quick break. When we come back, we will be getting to your calls. And I will be thanking you for your patience and taking your calls all the way until midnight on the East Coast, 9 p.m. on the Pacific. This is progress.
0: Okay. picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month.
2: I'm John Fugel saying this is SiriusXM XM Progress. Rhonda Handsome. Rhonda, how does our evil army of the night follow you and keep up with all your doings? Oh, follow me on Facebook at Rhonda Handsome Comedy and all of my artistic types on Instagram, Go. Follow Rhonda Full, that's with two L's, and all my wild people on Twitter, at Rhonda Handsome, like a handsome man without the D. You don't need that D. Let's go to the phones really quick, guys. Try to make your point as quickly as possible. We've only got seconds left. David in Connecticut, welcome. Oh, she doesn't need that D. She doesn't need that D. <laughs> she doesn't need it. <laughs> What's going on, brother John? Hello, Hello. Rhonda. Great
1: Hi. show tonight, my man, as always. And i um, looking forward to tomorrow. And real quick, I was watching MS earlier and they were having a nice round table. I was bouncing around, but I happened to catch this one conversation where at least one person was calling out the, you know, the whole theme of fake Christians. And I thought of Mm -hmm. you immediately and I said, you know what, if I can get through tonight, I just want to, I want to mention that to you to kind of signal there's hope on the horizon to bring one of your expert,
0: you know, one of your expert topics to the greater discussion long-term, because I think that's coming, man. I mean, you 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 bang it out of the park every night on that
1: topic, and it was nice to hear it on corporate media tonight.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, they they have me on there. Usually if MS calls me, it's about one of those things. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate your kind words, and uh, let's let's talk tomorrow night. Let's discuss all the good news we find out.
1: Keep the faith, brother.
2: That's it. Thank you so much. Really quick, Mike in Michigan, I can give you like 30 seconds, super fast.
1: To avoid confrontation in Michigan... They're having Democrats vote on Tuesday and Republicans vote on Wednesday.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. Yes, please. Republicans, if you're listening, do your patriotic duty. Show up at the nearest polling place this Wednesday for freedom. Rhonda, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to all of our guests. Thank you so much to Thea Harper and the great Sean Bertolo for filling in. We will be back here tomorrow. And I'll see you tomorrow morning on Zerlina and tomorrow evening on Dean. I'm all over then. Go vote. Peace.